This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm in Utqiagvik, Alaska, watching a performance of traditional dancing and drumming at the Inupiat Heritage Center. This dance is called I Feel Like a Little Old Man. Utqiagvik is the northernmost city in the United States. You might know of it as Barrow, Alaska, but a few years ago the community voted to return it to its original Inupiaq name. With around 4,500 people, it's the largest town for hundreds of miles and the hub of a huge region called the North Slope Borough. The borough is kind of like a county, except it's almost as big as the state of Wyoming, and it has less than 10,000 people living in it. Utqiagvik is up on the coast. On one side of town, the Beaufort Sea is quite literally lapping at the door, and on the other, the marshy tundra extends to the horizon. This place is flat and it's cold. I was there at the end of August and it snowed on me, twice. Almost all of these traditional Inupiaq dances portray relationships with animals in the landscape. There's the polar bear shake and the duck walk. The movements evoke waves and wind and crews of people paddling boats and scouting for prey. It's a window into a culture that is defined by hunting. You can't grow crops or raise farm animals in this environment. If you want to eat, you have to go kill something. So the Inupiat have become incredibly skilled hunters. They catch fish, seals, geese, caribou, but nothing provides as much food as a whale. When you catch a whale, you can feed a thousand people or more with one whale. This is Gordon Brower. We have been doing that for thousands of years to survive it. That's the only way we could have survived here. Gordon is a whaling captain, but he says he's seen and heard things on TV that make him feel a little uncomfortable talking to outsiders about that part of his life. kind of makes me to believe there's a big dislike for anybody that kills whales and, and do things like that. But for those that have to live and have been doing this for thousands of years, and our archaeological history here, it dates back several thousand years of constant use and hunting whales and providing food uh, for our communities. It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of the whale here in Utqiagvik. The average winter temperature in this part of Alaska is about negative 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the average. It often gets a whole lot colder than that. The sun doesn't rise above the horizon for about two months. But for thousands of years, whales have kept communities alive through the cold, dark Arctic winters. And here in Utqiagvik, people still depend on whales for food and for cultural survival. But they also depend on oil. Alaska's North Slope is one of the most oil-rich regions in North America, and there's a lot of natural gas and coal, too. Taking that stuff out of the ground is big business, and a portion of the money from that business makes its way back to Inupiaq communities, funding schools, hospitals, roads, and more. But oil and gas development comes at a cost. The drilling can disrupt or displace the animals that feed people here. And of course, carbon emissions from fossil fuels are warming the planet, and especially the Arctic. That is not good for whales or whalers. So what do you do when the thing you can't live without in the short term is the same thing that threatens your very existence in the long term? 
That's our question for this episode, viewed through the eyes of two whalers from Utkiavik, Alaska. The health of the ice cover is not very good. We can't fight Mother Nature. We can't fight the wave actions or the storms. It's there. It's real. When, when I looked at the fish, man, you could see how healthy they were before oil development came around. You have to address all of these issues that are connected to each other, and that includes culture that is part of that environment. The Arctic is a vibrant place. It is a changing place. One of the first things young Arctic whalers have to learn is how to handle themselves on the ice. Our camps were sometimes 15 miles out offshore. We would live offshore for up to a month trying to harvest these marine mammals. And we still do that today. Gordon Brower says that in Utkiavik, the whale hunt happens from traditional skin boats, small, light crafts made by the hunters themselves and powered by paddles, not motors. The whaling crews take these boats out to the edge of the sea ice and set up camps there. My earliest recollection is maybe 10 years old, maybe 9 years old, of being the young guy and, and doing the minimal things required of us, like keep the stove lit, uh, make sure and, and harvest ice for water, uh, and know where and learn to get fresh water on the ice. We learned in our last episode about how older sea ice tends to be thicker and stronger. But Gordon says another key difference is that multi-year ice has less salt in it. Multi-year ice over time gets uh, bleached and the salt comes out of it. And you can find these areas of fresh water in multi-year ice. As sea ice forms, it sort of squeezes the salt molecules out. And the older it is, the fresher it is. This is really important to whalers because, like Gordon said, they live on the ice during the hunt, and you can't drink out of the open ocean. So as the Arctic warms up and the multi-year ice melts away... Now you got to bring your own water from shore to your camp offshore because you're not seeing these glaciated-type ice that develop over long periods of time that are salt-free. And so those are some of the subtle differences that you see, but they're a big difference when you got to live on the ice because you don't have a fresh water source just feet away from you anymore. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. Is it more dangerous now? Like yeah, it's considerably, I think, more dangerous. It's not as, you're not as sure-footed on the ice anymore. Hunting whales has always been risky especially from skin boats. In fact, just this October, two Utkiavik hunters died when their boat capsized as they were hauling a whale in. But because of climate change, the risks are greater now. More people are falling through the ice, especially on snowmobiles while hunting or traveling. And of course, loss of sea ice affects all kinds of Arctic animals too. Polar bears, narwhals, walruses, seals, even birds. They all use the sea ice in different ways, and as those animals are impacted, so are the people who depend on them. And the warming happening on land affects the hunt too. You have to be able to preserve that food and maintain its uh, edibility. You have to be able to eat that and not have it spoil on you. And that's what permafrost represents. Permafrost, you'll remember, is just soil that stays frozen all year round for two years or more. It's still common in Utgavik to have a permafrost cellar, a big hole cut into the frozen ground where you can store whale meat or anything else you want to keep cool. 
for thousands of years, we've been able to preserve entire whale by cutting it up into blocks and, and preserve it and put it inside the earth in caches that are literally inside the earth. The earth is our refrigerator. But as the Arctic warms up, those permafrost cellars aren't as reliable anymore. Gordon says they sometimes thaw unexpectedly and food goes bad. All over Utqiabik, actually, I saw signs of permafrost thaw and erosion, roads buckling and sinking, seawalls under repair. It felt kind of like a much bigger version of Shishmaref. There's no question that this region is warming up. And Gordon says everyone's trying to adapt as quickly as they can. It was a gradual change, and then it accelerated. In the 70s, you had multi-year ice all the way up to maybe 1980s. And to me, that's a vivid memory because that's when I was very active as a young person. Uh, you would see probably retreats in the, in the 70s, maybe 15, 20 miles. Uh, but today, you're looking at retreat of ice for hundreds of miles. But even with all of these changes, Gordon says the whaling traditions are still strong here. And when they do catch a whale, they use every part of it and share the food throughout the community. The whale brings on a festival of its own. And everybody gets new garments and clothing. And and sometimes people get married and other things happen. And it is a festival period centered around the whale. How does that feel to you as a whaling captain when you see people enjoying the meat? It feels good because a whale means so much because there's the widows, there's the ill, there's the children, there's the ability to make food manageable for a large community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I think for me, it makes me feel warm. It makes me feel good that I'm doing a service for my community. The whales hunted in this part of the Arctic are mostly bowheads, incredible creatures by almost any measure. They spend their entire lives in the Arctic, and they can grow to 60 feet long. But like so many other kinds of whales, the bowhead population was devastated by commercial whaling. For about 300 years, starting in the early 1600s, whales were aggressively hunted worldwide. Their blubber was rendered into oil, which lit homes across Europe and later the Americas, and their baleen was used in all kinds of products where a strong but flexible material was required, from corsets to springs for typewriters. It was this industrial level hunting that caused whale populations to plummet, leading to the near universal ban on commercial whaling today. But for indigenous communities in the Arctic, whales weren't historically a source of cash, they were a source of food. Whale meat, blubber, and organs are rich in protein, vitamins, minerals, and healthy fats. And communities had always taken only the number of whales they could consume. So the Inupiat and other Inuit groups fought hard for the right to maintain a subsistence hunt. And they now follow regulations set by the International Whaling Commission. To be part of a crew providing this food for the community was, and is, a major source of pride. Do you think of yourself as an Arctic person? I would say yes. And what what does that mean to be Arctic? That that means um, to be able to go out and go hunt. This is Price Levitt. He's in his mid-60s with salt and pepper hair and an easy smile. At the time of our interview, he was the executive director of the Inupiat community of the Arctic Slope, the regional tribal government. The main thing that satisfies me in my mind 
and hard is being able to go out hunt you know the types of animals that that keeps us healthy price says when he was growing up there was only one grocery store in town and it didn't always have very much in it so hunting wasn't really about recreation it was about survival in fact the whole notion of going to a store and buying food imported from somewhere else is really new here Price says his father grew up living almost exclusively off of what could be found in the local area. Yeah, my, my dad remembered um, having milk from caribou in his younger days. And they were living from place to place wherever they, they could find food. Today, the grocery stores in Utqiavik are more reliably stocked, but all of that food has to be flown or shipped in, and the costs can be enormous. A gallon of milk can run you $10. A box of cereal can be eight or nine. So the ability to hunt still really matters here, and whaling is definitely the pinnacle hunting experience. But when Price was a child and all of his friends were going out onto the ice to learn the whaling traditions, he was told he had to stay home. Well, it it kind of tore, you know, tore your heart. I mean, it was always there, and it always tormented me that, you know, I want to be go out and go whaling. Price was named after an uncle who drowned in the sea shortly before Price was born, and his parents were worried the same thing might happen to him. It's a strong Inupiaq belief that when you name a child after someone, that person lives on in a very tangible way in their namesake, including possibly sharing their fate. So Price's parents kept him off the ice. It was a loving attempt to keep him safe, but for Price, it was torture. I I wanted to be a whaling captain. Did you argue with them? No. Mm-hmm. Respect for your elders is a strong element of Inupiaq culture. And Price says arguing with your parents just wasn't done. Yeah, and they, they told me, well, go, go to school. And I concentrated on school, and I, I turned out to be a teacher's pet. <laughs> <laughs> Price was a good student, and there was no high school in Utyavik at that time. So, like lots of Alaska Native kids in his generation, he was sent to boarding school, a place called Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, more than a thousand miles away. Uh, um, I would get homesick like a lot of us, and, you know, we had our moments crying for our parents. But overall, Price had a great experience at boarding school. He didn't encounter the abuse and forced assimilation that traumatized many indigenous children. Uh, I think I ended up going there at the right time being with the right teachers, and I just bloomed there. Price did so well in school that he ended up getting into Stanford. He was 19 years old in 1972 when he left for California. Oh, man, that was, uh, that, that what they would say, two words, cultural shock. And here are the major developments in the news this morning. American warplanes have begun a massive bombardment of North Vietnam. The war was raging in Vietnam. In August, Richard Nixon was nominated for a second term. And in October, Miles Davis played a concert at Stanford. Price's father lived a semi-nomadic life on the Arctic tundra. His formal schooling ended at first grade. And here was Price, one generation later, at Stanford University in sunny California, pretty close to the epicenter of hippie culture. It was an intense transition, but he liked it, mostly. Oh man, that hot weather was, I I, I could never get used to hot weather. 
Price studied English and writing. He even took a class from Paul Ehrlich, the famous biologist. And he remembers that that was the first time he heard about how fossil fuel pollution could mess up the planet's climate. But while he was advancing in the classroom, Price was keenly aware that he was moving even further away from this other kind of education that he'd always longed for, knowledge of his own culture and the expertise that can only be gained through action on the land and water in collaboration with friends and family. So after two years, he came home to Utkiabik. He worked in construction and began to pursue his dream. He was determined to become a whaling captain. So I decided, yeah, I, I got to do it. So when you decided to become a whaling captain, do you have to get like permission from other whaling captains or can you just decide I'm going to do this? Uh, just decide on my own. It's got to be the, the will to, you know, set your goals and do what's going to satisfy, you know, your heart and mind. Price says he went out with his aunt's whaling crew, where he was given fairly easy tasks at first so he could watch and learn. And he got help from his younger brother, too. He's never hesitated to go help me like I would get a step and then I would call him and, and I took notes, took pictures that took like, you know, six years. While he was working on becoming a whaling captain, Price was also pursuing other goals. He built his own house and eventually got his contractor's license. He continued taking college classes, and in 2005, he earned his bachelor's degree. But for him, the biggest milestone came in 2012. I, I was able to build my own boat frame, put seal skin on it, so I um, was able to go out spring whaling in 2012. So. I've been a whaling captain since then. Price is now teaching his 26-year-old daughter to carry on these traditions. So she, she's the one person that I, I trust to be with me going up caribou hunting or, or geese hunting or whaling. So I, I take her with me all the time. For people who don't grow up in a hunting culture, which is most of us these days, it can be hard to understand how this process of killing an animal for food can also bond people to that same animal. Visitors to the Arctic love to learn about whales and take pictures of them, and I was certainly one of those visitors. But to Price, there's a visceral awareness of how much he needs the whales. The fate of his culture and his community is bound up with the fate of this animal. So for him, to be a whale hunter is to be a whale protector. You know, like they say, the fossil fuels are disappearing, and my mentality has been to kind of pick up the old ways to sustain, you know, our our livelihood here and our survival. And I think um, to keep the environment, the water, the land, to, to keep the animals, um, to protect them, that that is what's going to you know, sustain us for the next, you know, 50, 100 years from now. Price is correct, of course. The fossil fuels will disappear in the future. But right now, on the North Slope, it's all systems go when it comes to oil and gas development. As we mentioned in our last episode, the Liberty Project was recently given the green light by the U.S. Department of the Interior, 
oil and gas from Liberty will be the first to come out of Arctic federal waters in the United States. The owners need to get some more permits before they can begin construction, but the plan is to build an artificial island six miles off the coast of the North Slope in the Beaufort Sea. That will then become a drilling platform for both oil and natural gas. Price says he thinks this is a bad idea because a spill could devastate the community's ability to provide for itself. Then, uh, you know, we would have to wait for store-bought or rations from the government. And, and that would, I mean, that would deeply break my heart, is to wait for a handout instead of getting what we're so used to eating every year on our tables. As I read through the announcement released by the Department of the Interior, one of the drilling requirements caught my eye. It said, Drilling may occur only during times of solid ice conditions. This is pretty typical for oil and gas projects on the North Slope. The heavy equipment needed for drilling can't run on unstable, partially thawed ground. It needs a frozen foundation. But this is an offshore project. So in this case, they're talking about getting equipment and workers out to a job site on a road built on the sea ice, which is obviously a problem in a world where sea ice is melting. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to make the leap here. How is the warming going to affect the drilling, I wondered. Will it slow the project down or possibly even make it impossible? And sure enough, shortly after the project received the nod from the Trump administration, Alaska Public Media reported that Hillcorp, the company behind this project, says it's going to have to slow down construction of the drilling platform because of, quote, historically abnormal ice conditions in the Arctic. But of course, these abnormal ice conditions are the new normal in the Arctic, and that's being caused by the very substances the company aims to drill. We'll have more after this short break. Long time ago, that uh, good ice all the time. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and this is David Levitt, Price's father. He's 88 years old. Really, uh, not good ice anymore. Yeah, ice in, uh, you know, it's not good anymore. David says when he was a child, the sea ice used to freeze up in October and would often stay frozen into July. His eyes light up as he remembers taking the dog sled to summer celebrations in Utgiavik. Come up here with the dog team on July. Come up here for the 4th of July with the dog team. <laughs> no, not anymore. You know, you know that uh, ice is not good anymore. David says now the sea doesn't freeze up until November or even December sometimes, and it breaks up in June or earlier. And this is because of the burning of fossil fuels, some of which are coming out of this very same region. The Prudhoe Bay oil field, one of the largest oil fields in North America, is located inside the boundaries of the North Slope Borough, along with dozens of other oil and gas fields. And through leases, taxes, and revenue sharing agreements, that fossil fuel development is funding basically everything in Utkiavik and across the North Slope, from waste disposal to the Heritage Museum. The story of why this is the way it is, and how the money gets from the oil field into the community, is pretty fascinating, but also really complicated. So I'm just going to give the extremely simplified version. 
When oil was discovered on the North Slope in the middle of the 20th century, the Inupiat knew that big changes were coming, whether they liked it or not. And they knew what had happened to native communities in the lower 48 when outsiders decided to take an interest in their land. So local leaders were determined not to let that happen to them. They worked to create a bunch of different agreements that would ensure Inupiaq people would maintain some control over their lands and their fate. And these agreements also ensured that the communities would get a cut of the oil wealth. Knowing that oil development was going to come, that we needed to do something so we were not completely overtaken and assimilated, but to find a way to balance and coexist. Again, this is Gordon Brower. And it was to protect subsistence, protect our resources, our cultural heritage. And we've been doing that for 40 years on the slope. In addition to being a whaling captain, he's the director of the planning department of the North Slope Borough. And he says the oil and gas money has made a real difference here. The ability to have schools, the ability to have police department, fire department, the ambulance, the hospitals, all of these things that come with development that uh, didn't make us the ward of the federal government. And I think it's been a balancing act. And I think we have to live with that because I don't see any other way. We have a need to adapt and use these modern tools in uh, holding the industry accountable so that we can continue to hunt our whales, we can continue to harvest on the land and develop in a way that blends the two and work together. Not everyone on the North Slope is sure that it's possible to blend the two. The small village of Nawixit, east of Utqiavik, is surrounded by oil wells, and residents have complained of respiratory problems and other health issues. But there are lots of factors working against anyone opposed to extractive industries here. Everyone knows they need whales, but they also know that they need schools and roads and hospitals. We don't have any other horse to ride up here. The Arctic is an oil and gas province. If you look at a map of oil and gas development on the North Slope, you can understand why Gordon says this. The whole region is peppered with places where drilling is already underway or where it could be soon. And there's also the 23 million acre National Petroleum Reserve. Just so you can understand how big that is, Yellowstone National Park is about 2.2 million acres. But the North Slope is also home to some of the biggest intact ecosystems in the world, including the 20 million acre Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And of course, the waters just off the coast are home to the whales that Gordon values so much. If you're thinking about, am I contradicting myself in, in trying to balance oil and gas development with what's going on today with the ice extent retreat, the permafrost issues that we're having. I I don't know, but um, I know we're going to adapt and uh, we still got to preserve the whale and do our best to preserve it and feed people. Utkiavik is in a catch-22. The oil and gas development that's supporting their community now is the same thing that's undermining their ability to maintain their traditions and their culture in the future. 
But this is actually just a microcosm of the exact same Catch-22 we're all in. Whether or not we live next to an oil rig, we're all drinking from that poisoned well. I got to Utqiapik and all around the Arctic on carbon-emitting airplanes. I'm recording this in a studio heated by natural gas. You're listening to this on a device using electricity, and there's a good chance it came from a power plant that burns fossil fuels. And yes, we can all make individual choices to reduce our carbon footprints, but the deeper issue is that we've inherited a system that has made the fossil fuel choice for us. Oil and gas are woven into the fabric of our entire lives, but the damage from those same fuels threatens all of our cultures and all of our futures. This is a bowhead whale, recorded by the Norwegian Polar Institute. Scientists believe bowheads are the longest-lived mammals on the planet. Some have lived more than 200 years. So there could be a whale alive today that was born well before the American Civil War. And a bowhead born this year could potentially survive into the 23rd century. To us, that seems like an almost impossibly faraway time. But to a bowhead, it's a future they may live to sing about. Like humpback whales, bowheads sing long, complex songs, but a recent study found that while humpbacks tend to repeat their songs in a fixed structure, bowheads change them up. They improvise, and that led one scientist to dub them the jazz musicians of the Arctic. The decisions we make in the next decade will have a huge impact on what the future holds for the bowheads and for the people who live in the Arctic and for all of us. Whatever happens, we're all probably going to need to learn how to improvise. Reporting for Season 2 of Threshold was funded by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Park Foundation, and by you, our listeners. Our production partners are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Threshold is made by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skabicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Herlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Kathy Ita Agiak and the drummers and dancers of the Inupiat Heritage Center, Nicholas Gueco, Ann Jensen, Neil Kinnebrew, Andy Stemp, Norman Edwards, and Illisavik College. Our music is by Travis Yost.
And next time on Threshold, Russia. Does this feel like a democracy? No, of course not. I think we are not free here, really. Really?